That Medic Podcast, your bi-weekly dose of education and inspiration in the healthcare field. Hey everyone, I'm Simmer, a student at Harvard University. And I'm Daniela, a student at Oxford University. And this is That Medic Podcast. Enjoy! In this podcast, we spoke to Dr. Anna Annapolis, Scientific Director of the Intramural Research Program at the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. We discussed why students should care about health equity, how the pandemic has changed short-term NIMHD priorities, and where disparities research is going in the next 15 to 20 years. Today's show is perfect for anyone excited about health equity or just intrigued about research. So without further ado, let's have a listen. But before we get into the episode, I want to tell you briefly about our sponsor, Amboss. Created by a team of dedicated physicians from around the world, Amboss is an interactive library of over 20,000 medical topics interlinked with a question bank holding more than 5,500 clinical case-based questions. With all the necessary resources in one place, Amboss instantly delivers up-to-date medical knowledge to students, physicians, and faculty globally. Amboss has powerful learning and clinical tools combined into one platform, making studying a breeze and life on the wards easier. With the Amboss library and question bank side-by-side, students can look up terms instantly when solving questions. Students and physicians around the world use Amboss material to excel in their exams and on the wards, so sign up in minutes at amboss.com. You can try Amboss risk-free with a trial today. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Dr. Annapolis. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. We normally start the podcast by asking the question, why did you decide to go into medicine? So I have been interested in, in health and healthcare I, as long as I can remember. And I think it started because my parents were both immigrants with almost no education. My father never went to school from Mexico, from rural areas. And so I was the advocate for them. And I was a translator, the interpreter for them during their healthcare visits. And we had experiences growing up where we had very limited access to healthcare and, and suffered, you know, some infectious diseases that could have been prevented by vaccines, for example. So growing up in that, with those experiences from childhood really influenced my interest in public health and healthcare and how we deliver it to non-mainstream populations, right? How do we reach them? How do we get them the access in terms of health equity that they deserve as populations to maintain the U.S. population as a whole in a healthy state. So, you know, in college, I majored in psychology. I went on to a master's in public health, took some time off, did some research um, at UCSF, and then went back to get my doctorate program in epidemiology because I knew that I wanted to stay in the field of research, but from a more applied perspective where I was working with communities and trying to come up with interventions that would increase their access to services that have been shown to improve health. Terrific. And I know that now you're at the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities, or the NIMHD. But previously, you're a professor and behavioral epidemiologist at UCSF. I know that you were at UCSF for quite some time, about 27 years. But can you give me a sense of what your research interests were during your time there? Initially, I joined uh, UCSF as a project director before I went back to get my PhD. And my interest was in the areas of how language and culture affect healthcare outcomes in patients with chronic disease. And so the area that I wanted to really explore is when you 
speak a different language and have a unique cultural background that may not be the same as your medical provider, how does that influence the nature of the care that you receive? And so uh, that became the center of a lot of the work that I did while I was there. We developed a measure to look at from the, we did a lot of qualitative interviews, focus groups with patients from diverse ethnic backgrounds and languages, and developed a measure that was a patient self-reported survey to look at not only the quality of the communication, but really the interpersonal style of the clinician and how that meshed from the patient's perspective with how they wanted their physicians to interact with them. And then we also looked at things like, were they included in the decision-making? Was their input secured in, in terms of their preferences for care? And then also looked at things like discrimination and respect from the perspective of the patient. And this was years ago. So now you see those types of measures more commonly used in quality of care measures. But that was an area that really interested me. And then from there, I branched out working in the area because we secured a large grant uh, to look at cancer screening utilization in the Latino community and began community-based work where we were doing a lot of outreach to local Latino communities to, to promote cancer screenings among men and women, so cervical, you know, colorectal cancer screening and so forth, breast cancer screening, mammography. And then working with all the community partners, what we, we were able to increase screening rates in that, but what I saw was a gap in what we knew about what happens to patients after they get diagnosed. And we know that cancer care has become a chronic disease model where people for certain cancers are surviving a long time now with the after effects of their treatments, with concerns, psychological concerns about recurrence and so forth, distress, anxiety, the effects on the family, the ability to get surveillance and follow-up care, all those factors. There were no programs for Latinos that working with my partners that we identified. And the latter part of my what I um, chose to focus on to develop culturally and linguistically sensitive programs that could be community-based and delivered with all the resource constraints involved in community settings to improve quality of life once you've been diagnosed and uh, into long-term survivorship. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I know that racial, ethnic, and linguistic concordance and sensitivity are of incredible import and, as you mentioned, impact healthcare quality uh, quite a bit. And I know that while you were at UCSF, you also directed the Center for Aging in Diverse Communities. I would love to know more about that, if you mind sharing. Sure. So this is a, a center that still exists. It was originally started by um, my predecessor, Eliseo Perestable, who's our, also our NIMHD director. When he left uh, to come to NIMHD, I took over the center and submitted a renewal grant, which was successfully funded, and it's still in existence. And so the charge of that center was to look at a variety of things, which was the research, to look at we know that the population as a whole is aging and it's becoming more diverse, that older population. And so a lot of attention and data is missing in terms of, for example, now we're seeing more data on Alzheimer's disease and the disproportionate effect on certain populations that we weren't seeing before because those things weren't being studied. But it's, it's so it's focusing on the research in aging and chronic disease comorbidity and functional status, all those areas of aging research that are critical that have not been well studied in minority populations in the U.S. And the other piece is doing the community outreach and the development of the measures that are appropriate for use in these communities so that the measures 
and the methods we're using are valid, reliable, appropriate, and well accepted and tolerated within these communities. And then we're doing it in an inclusive way that involves the communities so that as they age and, and age in place, for example, we know that African-Americans and Latinos uh, are less likely to use formal supportive care services once you age and that they're much more likely to be taken care of by family caregivers and new spirituality, for example, different cultural values that have an impact on how they address their functional limitations or aging in place. And so those are things that weren't well understood that we're getting a better handle on that the center was working on. Incredible. And I know that you mentioned some of your early childhood experiences, but I'm really curious what drives your interest and focus in health disparities research. Once I focused on the area of cancer survivorship, more specifically in Latinas with breast cancer, we did a lot of work talking to the providers, the clinicians, the oncologists, the surgeons that took care of them. We did a lot of interviews with the cancer survivors themselves and with their families and from the community advocates. And what we learned that the diagnosis of cancer was a devastating experience. And a large part had to do with cultural values and economic uh, constraints that they face. So things like not understanding their diagnosis or what to expect of their treatment plan because they didn't speak the language or having information that was too high education, too high literacy level to even understand it or trying to protect their families. And so as a result, they didn't have anyone to talk to and did not get the types of social intangible support they needed. So all these factors just really drove me uh, in the latter part of my career, and it still drives me today, to realize and, and try to implement programs that are based on the science in terms of what works in giving people tools to manage their cancer experience, but also that are culturally relevant and well accepted and actually have produced changes in terms of quality of life and reductions in psychosocial distress and anxiety and depression, and also promote more advocacy within the community, right, and more capacity building to provide these types of programs in community-based settings where you don't have all the resource constraints, I mean, where you have some of the resource constraints and less fewer resources than you would in some of these higher income areas. Certainly, um, the idea of cultural competency is something that I've heard quite a bit, and I think is emerging increasingly for and for good reason. I want to shift now into the NIMHD, uh, where you are the scientific director of the Division of Intramural Research. For our students at home, what exactly is the NIMHD, and what are your responsibilities as scientific director? NIMHD is the one is one of the few ICs that isn't disease specific. We cut across diseases, so that's the first distinction, and the second is that. We drive the research that's related on minority health and health disparities. So our, our charge is to study the determinants of minority health. What are the things that produce worse health and what are the things that preserve health in different minority groups in the U.S., as well as the mechanisms of health disparities. And that includes everything from you know, cellular biology to society, right, to policy level interventions and natural experiments that we can study to look at the effects of more population level changes on health. Most of the institutes, the overwhelmingly largest proportion of their budget goes extramurally, which is what we award to outside academic institutions and so forth. But um, each 
institute, almost every institute has an intramural research program, which is, you know, their own investigators in-house that, that uh, conduct high risk, potentially high reward research. And so, so that's what I oversee at NIMHD. We have a program of research at social behavioral research, population health, epidemiology, and some genomics, looking at ancestry markers and outcomes. And so that's the part of the science that I oversee in our in-house research program. Incredible. And the appointment is also a historic one in that you are the first Latina named to the position at the National Institutes of Health, or NIH. So we've seen the importance of representation and what that can mean. What does this historic appointment mean for you and perhaps for other Latina scientists? Well, when I hear that, I always say, you know, that's not necessarily a good thing that I'm the first one, right? We are making really concerted efforts at NIH. You know, it's definitely been a shift, I think, toward really acknowledging uh, at NIH that this kind of exclusion and implicit bias and all those factors, structural racism, discrimination, gender bias, all those things are things that, that are reflected. Yeah, you know, we reflect society, NIH does, and we're working very intensively to diversify the biomedical workforce. And for me, I've taken that on as a personal challenge as well as a career challenge. And I think it's really critical, all of us that are at NIH who are from what we would call minority statuses and backgrounds, and also racially, ethnically, you know, gender um, diverse, I think we're rising to the forefront and saying, you know, we need to, we need to change this picture. You know, the way we do business has to change if we expect the results to change and the diversity and the representation to be there. So I'm just really passionate about it. You know, we do it in, in the trainees that we bring in house, all our post-baccalaureate and post-doctoral and, and uh, graduate level trainees uh, are very diverse. And we do recognize that that's an investment we make in diversifying the future workforce that we feel very passionately about. And before we get back to the episode, a brief word from our sponsors. Amboss is a medical knowledge platform built on three fundamental elements. At the core, a comprehensive medical library helps students learn the facts and the nuances of medicine. Also central is the QBank. By using these tools, students unlock the third element, personalized analytics, which helps students make smart studying decisions. Three essential tools of learning all in one place. It's no surprise Amboss has become one of the most popular resources for students and schools worldwide. Ready to take a closer look? Sign up for a free trial today at amboss.com. Now, back to the episode. Now I want to shift to a slightly different topic and tease out the differences between conducting research in government and academia, because there are certainly two major institutions or arenas where one can conduct research. So I'm very curious, how does your work with NIMHD compare or contrast with your work at UCSF? So um, in, in an academic setting, I think there's, uh, at least for the type of research I was doing, there's some things that make it easier to do community-based participatory research. And a lot of that has to do with, with federal regulations in terms of conflict of interest and showing transparency and you know fair and equitable process for awarding contracts, all those things that make it just a little bit tougher in terms of the bureaucracy. But 
In terms of the science, the advantage, which is tremendous at NIH, is that you're not writing grants. So you can pick up a line of research scientifically that you're really committed to and interested in. And you can see that through for years. You know, it's not like you're dependent on the next funding cycle and whether you get renewed to be able to continue to develop your scientific ideas along a particular line of research. And so that has been a tremendous advantage to take risks in terms of what we may put out there in terms of our research and what we develop as research protocols. And then to be able to continue that research for an extended period of time is invaluable. And I would say the other thing is that we have access to, to these transdisciplinary teams, you know, because you're at NIH, you have top-notch scientists in every scientific field you can think of. And, it, and they're very accessible, very cooperative, very collaborative. And in the academic setting, there was, I think, a bit more competition, but there is a lot of collaboration. But because I was in an um, academic medical institution, most of those collaborations were with physicians, right? So different specialties, obviously. But here at NIH, you have everything from imaging specialists to cognitive specialists to biologists. So in bioinformatics, you, know, you have everything available to you in terms of the science. And it's really really, really exciting. It makes your work exciting. Oh, I'm sure the continuity and then transdisciplinarities, it sounds, it sounds amazing. So obviously, we're still in the COVID-19 pandemic. And that threw a wrench in a lot of long-term research visions and planning. And I'd be really curious, how did the pandemic change short-term NIMHD research priorities? And what impact do you think pandemic will have in the long-term uh, for the NIMHD? Well, for us, as an Institute, uh, we had to pivot and help rapidly develop these community level initiatives to promote access to testing and uh, treatment and so on in, in our affected communities, right? All, we know that COVID-19 disproportionately affects American Indians, African Americans, Latinos, and so on. And those were the populations that we have the expertise to work with. You know, we have the community contacts, the academic contacts to push that agenda forward. So we were called upon to do that relatively quickly. And um, that work is actively ongoing. So I would say that's the first thing. For us intramurally, it put some of the protocols we had on hold because we weren't able to bring people into the clinical center for interviews or protocols. So people, especially I think the fellows were affected, our trainees, because it meant that their research was on hold. But um, a lot of the research luckily we do as NIMHD is uh, secondary data analysis. So that's what we've turned to. And so we've been doing a lot of that. We also intramurally did three national, nationally representative surveys to look at the impact of COVID-19 oversampling uh, minority populations and rural and low-income populations in the U.S. So we're starting to analyze that data and, um, and get it out there in the scientific literature and learning more about the impact. And we'll be doing another resurvey. So those were things that we did. And there are other projects that, that are ongoing to better understand the impact of COVID-19 on our communities. And the notion of health equity has gained tremendous attention over the past year for a good reason, as you were mentioning. COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted racial and ethnic minorities. There's certainly much work ahead, of course. So what do you see as the importance of bringing a healthy lens to research? And 
Why should students care about health equity? When you think about health equity, it really cuts across every sector, every major sector of society, right? And I think that's what health equity brings to the table. It's it's really all our responsibility. You know, we see it. The roots of the disparities in health that we see on a population level, individual level as well, stem from differences in education, differences in the capacity to build wealth across generations, differences in, you know, in the quality of healthcare you receive. And all that has been documented over and over and over again in the literature. So I think it's really raising the standards and the metrics and the bar that we aspire to, right? It's not only eliminating a disparity in health that we see for a particular disease, it's really getting at the root causes of the health inequalities in the first place. And so I think for students that are entering and thinking about their careers, it's really thinking more broadly about what creates the health disparities and health inequities that we see in society and that there are so many options in terms of a career you can select, you know, including environmental factors and climate change and anything you want to really put your finger on that we need to look at more broadly in terms of its root, the root causes. I, I just think it's an opportunity. It's a way of looking at these issues that needs to transcend education in general and also uh, the different sectors of society. I couldn't agree more. But of course, to understand how to work to advance health equity, it's also important to understand the challenges to it. So I want to ask you, what do you see as the largest challenges to health equity, either current or impending? Oh, boy, that's a great question. I think the greatest challenges are mobilizing all these sectors, you know, so they work in somehow in a coordinated, unified way. And the more we can get these multi-sector, multi-interventional, multi-level programs in place, the more likely we are to see impact. And I think the other challenge is that we sometimes wait and study problems for an extended period of time and don't react to new data as it comes in. So I think it's that being able to pivot and continue to change course or directions in a specific area and respond to what we're learning is going to be critical. So I think those are the major things that that a lot of this is structural and until we start looking at some of the fundamental causes of these inequities um, and really work in, in, in a unified way to address them that, that we're not going to see change at the population health level that we would like to see. Mm-hmm, certainly. And you mentioned fundamental causes. I think a fundamental cause theory by Lincoln Phelan is a really incredible and helpful lens, at least for me to understand these issues. I agree. I highly recommend mm-hmm. that. Now, I want to look a little bit to the future. And I want to know, I mean, you, of course, are the science director of intramural funding. What NIMHD research priorities are you most excited about? And where do you see minority health and health disparities research going in the next 15 to 20 years? Well, I think a big part of what we're learning is the interface of biology and uh, social factors. And I think that's where um, NIMHD and intramural and other intramural researchers at NIH can contribute We know, for example, that there are social epigenetic changes that increase your vulnerability um, later in life. Things like childhood adverse events, things like poverty that affect health later in life and how that interacts with your biology. Things like racial discrimination, 
you know, looking at how it affects, for example, your immunological function, your inflammation in the body, which we know creates risk of chronic diseases like cancer and heart disease. All those things, I think that's that's a big area of growth, better understanding how that produces disparities and contributes to disparities. Because if we can understand those mechanisms, then we can prevent them, right? And so I think that's a big area. And then another big area, I think, will be looking at these multi-sector kind of multi-level interventions. So not only a lot of the science and disparities and other science areas of science as well have focused at the individual level. So it's really how do we intervene on the patient to make them more, more adherent to their care, for example? How do we intervene on parents of a child, those types of things, to manage type 1 diabetes, all those things. But where it's really critical to advance the science, I think, is how do we intervene not only at this individual level, but at the community level, the neighborhood level, and more broadly at the policy level to affect change, right? And those things have to work in tandem. We have to be reiterating the same message. And what we learn from one level of research has to inform the higher levels of research, right? And so I think those are the two main areas. And I would say the third area is the use of technology. I think in minority communities, we're seeing a lot of community health workers um, use technology to expand the reach of, of interventions. So things like text messaging, online resources, uh, and uh, audiovisual supportive informational types of stress management tools, for example, and chronic disease management tools. I mean, I think those three areas are, are going to be critical in the coming you know, 20, 30, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And I think that nearly wraps up the episode. But before we go, could I ask you for your three pieces of advice for students interested in conducting medical research at the highest levels? I would say one is find something you're passionate about, because that will sustain you for those times that are challenging. And we know research isn't easy, as well as pursuing a a career in research is not easy. It has its own inherent challenges. But, um, and the second thing I would say is identify a gap, a scientific gap. So early on, look at the literature, find out what grabs you, look at what are the unanswered questions and let that curiosity drive you and always put it down on paper and date it and then look back at it, refine it, continue to expand it and develop it. Because if you, you know, and I mean paper literally, right? (laughs) On your computer is what I mean. But, um, and then the third thing is to find excellent mentors, right? And I I know this is a common given piece of advice to trainees piece that I always add because I think it's hard for minorities is, is, um, you know, we have this horrible imposter syndrome sometimes and we're afraid to reach out and ask for help. And that's a big part of it. And it was something I struggled with a lot and had to overcome. And I just think, you know, don't be afraid to cold call, cold email people, scientists in your particular area of interest. Be persistent. They're very busy. But, um, you know, come prepared, do informational interviews, ask them for specifics on how you can advance in the field, advance your career, people that other people you should talk to, articles you should read, whatever it is um, in any ways that they can help you. And if you're specific and you're, you're judicious about the use of their time, you'll find that many, many people that that you reach out to are very helpful and supportive. 
Incredible. Thank you so much, Dr. Nafilis, for coming on the show. Well, I appreciate you inviting me and I want to wish you the best. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. You can also head to the description of this podcast to follow us on all social media so that you don't miss out on any of our content.